The views expressed in this program are those of the individual participants and not necessarily those of WVUD or the University of Delaware. WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Thank you, Jason. And joining me live in the studio this morning is... uh, Fellow WVD personality Victor Perez, who's joining us not as a John Coltrane DJ, but in his real-life job as a sociology professor here at the University of Delaware. Victor, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, I know that you're... I first became aware of your work when we, IT, interviewed you about teaching, so I know that you're you're about trying to engage the students with all sorts of different kinds of approaches to many different disciplines. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's very important to you, isn't it? trying to get interdisciplinarity into the curriculum. Yeah, and both through substance as well as the medium. Uh, you know, traditional kind of classroom approaches, problem-based learning, as well as heavy use of technology and integration. Uh, and then I'm a sociologist, and I'm a sociologist who studies the environment as well as health. And so trying to incorporate examples into the classroom that show how those two areas also overlap is is something that I'm striving to do. So both in in the pedagogical approach and in substance, I'm really interested in that interdisciplinarity. Uh, So... Yeah, trying to, trying to be. It's 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 new. It's kind of novel. This the university departments and so forth. We're all moving forward with this idea. So, how do you manage to come up with ways to mix the physical sciences and the social sciences um, in the classroom, and, and then event, then switch on over to your research after that? Well, the two, uh, the classroom and research complement each other, and so uh, what I do research-wise can uh, be integrated into a lesson, and um, when I'm teaching that material, I also get to know it better myself, and I get to hear student feedback about it, which helps inform my research. So in terms of doing research and kind of inter- interdisciplinary work, integrating social sciences and physical sciences, the first question to ask is, what type of social science? do you want to integrate into what type of environmental or physical science? Uh, There are a variety of types of social sciences, economics, uh, sociology, psychology, political science, etc. So integrating social sciences into the study of, for example, the environment, uh, what kind of physical science are you going to be looking at? Um, soil science, water science, air, etc. So you need to be you know, more specific about uh, the sort of social scientific approach as well as the physical environment that you're interested in. And then think about how you can create a unique synthesis by bringing the two together. So as a sociologist, one of the things that I'm doing right now, for example, in my research is looking at uh, the intersection of potential soil contaminants and water contaminants and flooding and sea level rise and how that might impact human health in local communities. So as a social scientist, I'm interested in how health is understood in local communities and how they uh, understand how their local environment and the potential pollutants within their environment can impact their health as a community, as individuals. So sort of like studying what the public knows about it because that can affect, to some extent, funding. It can, uh, for, for the hard sciences, it can affect uh, what kinds of projects... Um, 
get media coverage and that kind of thing, right? Uh, sure. Uh, it's, I, think that, um, I think that an interdisciplinary approach is, is particularly salient to National Institute of Health, Centers for Disease Control, and a handful of the other big federal funding agencies right now because they realize the importance of uh, the integration of social science approaches and social science theories and concepts and methodologies and how they can help inform uh, biological, physical, environmental science approaches and vice versa. Uh, the two are not uh, distinct entities. Uh, traditionally in academia, we're, we're, as, as PhDs, we're taught a discipline, and generally that does not involve input from others. So a narrow focus. Uh, narrow enough, yeah, because, I mean, you have to be trained in the theoretical, conceptual, and methodological approaches of your field. But what I think is important today especially is that we're realizing that one, being trained in, in, in a traditional field is important, but two, also being exposed to how you can utilize those skills in combination with other people's perspectives is very important. And so, for example, in working with sea level rise and potential um, contaminants in the soil or water that could affect human health, one of the things that I'm interested in doing as a sociologist, I'm, I'm what you would call kind of a social constructionist. And I'm interested in how people understand their, their health. So I'm curious about what they think about their health and how it's uh, re, you know, kind of related or influenced by their local environment. And then ultimately how we could, for example, do soil testing for contaminants and say, hey, you know, we've realized that there's this amount of arsenic or chromium or lead or whatever in the soil. And you've told me about your family's history of cancer or asthma or whatever it might be. Let's think about how the two might be related. And so what it does is it allows sort of a novel approach for us as researchers to be informed by the community as well as us being able to inform the community and there's a unique synthesis of knowledge that comes out of that. It sounds like there's, you know, a circle or, or a synthesis going on. I mean, you've got the physical scientist identifying an issue and then the sociological approach helps figure out sort of the human factor, mm -hmm. which then can then reinform more follow-up from the physical sciences. Absolutely, absolutely. So again, as someone who's interested in health, I'm really curious about how people form ideas about their health and how that's related to the environment, how they think it's related to the environment, and then what they do about that. Uh, other social science approaches that can be integrated into environmental studies of the environment, for example, could ask, you know, how much are you willing to pay to have remediation done in your community? Or how willing are you to move? Or how willing are you to have uh, a new site of industry or whatever near your community, et cetera, et cetera? So there's a variety of different approaches that you could take as a social scientist that have uh, a connection to the environment. And um, it allows us to ask new questions and answer new questions and, and ultimately take us further, I think, in our understanding. One of the research projects that you're actively involved in right now is, is looking at the whole idea of cancer clusters. Do they really exist? And what's the media portrayal like? And, and those sorts of issues. Yeah. Yeah, the, the cancer cluster issues is interesting to me uh, and it's, it's a segue really from, from my interest in the environment and human health and how people think about their health because cancer cluster investigations are community initiated. Uh, last estimate I read is about a thousand a year uh, across the country. And so they're community initiated. Someone thinks that there's uh, a cluster of a certain type of cancer either in their family or their neighborhood or whatever it might be. And they will ultimately uh, initiate an investigation of that by contacting uh, a state agency, state health agency, and so forth. And so I was really curious about how people think about their health and how it's related to the local environment and community. 
And the idea of a cancer cluster, to me, represented uh, this notion of concern. And so because they're community-initiated, so then I started looking more into what cancer clusters are, how they're measured, and so forth. And that's how that sort of uh, study um, that's a, that was the catalyst, really, for that study. And as I got into it more, I started to realize that uh, cancer clusters are, by definition, a, a measurement. And they're, they're an interesting form of measurement that we can discuss. And so I started to realize that cancer clusters were actually more of a rhetorical tool in communicating the potential relationship between the environment and health rather than uh, something with high statistical validity. And so I started getting interested in the, in the kind of rhetorical dimensions and the rhetorical effect of cancer clusters as they're presented in the news media. So, so it sounds like you were discovering that cancer clusters are not something that environmental scientists have done statistical analysis that would make anybody in the math department really happy <laughs> to say, yeah, they're, they're here. But they're sort of a, a framework that the media or communities are imposing on their understanding of what's going on? Uh, yeah. They're, they're really – I mean, when you talk about cancer clusters, the first thing to think about is that it's, it's really kind of a – it reflects a personal concern. Generally, an individual in a community or a, or a small group of people in a community see something unusual, so to speak. And, and you know, disease clusters in general, you can think about this process working, be they uh, – some of the – I mean, really, some of the most famous cases were uh, the quote-unquote sort of, sort of gay cancer when people realized HIV and the clustering of HIV among gay men in the United States, and then also the um, mesothelioma issue with exposure to uh, asbestos and certain forms of um, building materials where people started to see unusual, to them, unusual clustering of, of certain diseases. And so really what it reflects initially is sort of a personal concern and an observation where someone thinks something's, you know, not right. This is happening too much. And that's an interesting idea in and of itself sociologically because when people think that something's happening um, in an unusually high amount, something must be wrong. Uh, and so that's, that's, you know, a curious question, I think, uh, right. something that we do. You know, it's a natural enough kind of assumption. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I live yeah. near, um, I live in Newport, and uh, when that paint factory was in operation, mm -hmm. and the wind blew from the south. Yeah, you know, something nasty smelled. You know, <laughs> and, and if you know, if four families on my block had cancer, yeah, then you'd leap to the conclusion yeah. that gee, it must be from the Sibigagi paint plant. Yeah, yeah, and that, you know, I think that's only natural. I think, as you said, you know, we're. In many ways, we understand our, our worlds based on our local social and cultural and embodied milieus, you know. We, and that's, that's, that's essentially how we make sense of things. Uh, but a cancer cluster, again, is, a, is, is really a, it is a measurement. And, depend, and, and generally speaking, there's a consensus in how we would measure cancer clusters. Uh, for example, the CDC or, uh, you know, cancer cluster organizations and so forth that um, – or that represent kind of epidemiological uh, organizations would define a cancer cluster as a large number of cases of one type of cancer generally, uh, rather than several different types as a conglomerate. Uh, also, it generally is considered a cancer cluster if it's a rare type of cancer, and rather than common types like the big four, breast, colorectal, prostate, and lung cancer. And then lastly, uh, the third kind of key criteria generally in how people define or measure a cancer cluster and these are all cancer incidences, these are new cases of cancer, would be an increased number of cases of that certain type of cancer in an age group where typically that doesn't happen. 
So that's one of the only ways that we're able to kind of uh, single out potential cancer clusters because of the complexity of cancer, because of the hundreds of varieties of cancer, and because of the hundreds of varieties of causes and interrelated causes of cancer. So it's really complicated, and, and, but, but fundamentally a cluster is defined as a large number of cases. And a large number of cases is defined as uh, a higher number of expected cases, which is a statistical calculation, relative to what's generally observed. So right? a higher number than expected of, of what you'd see. Exactly. So if something observed is higher than expected, then that would be you know, considered to be a statistical anomaly. And so, but generally, also, that would have to be a more rare type of cancer and one, of, one type alone rather than a conglomerate. Because when you start adding lots of different cancer types together, then all kinds of statistical noise comes into play. Um, you know, random variation or chance, uh, behavior, uh, immigration, et cetera, et cetera. All these things come in. So the cancer cluster definition is, is necessarily precise. But one of the things that you find is that in the public media, the cancer cluster definition is anything but precise. It is generally, there's a lot of cancer around me, I think, and th therefore I live in a cluster. Let's initiate it. 99.9% uh, .9 of cluster investigations are, are, you know, don't go beyond step one, uh, essentially saying that these aren't clusters. So that's fundamentally how a cancer cluster is defined uh, as a measurement. And so that invites complexities of, uh, of statistical chance and anomaly, uh, it invites complexities of, you know, having to single out a single type of cancer it, in a certain type of group, demographic group, et cetera, et cetera. But that's how it's most precisely defined. Now, it sounds like, though, as you, as you said a few minutes ago, and by the way, I should remind everybody that we're speaking with Victor Perez, a professor of sociology here at the University of Delaware. But as you said a few minutes ago, that, that there have been some very specific kinds of, th of things that or the, these, clu these cluster analyses have developed an understanding of a real new disease. And I think the two big ones you mentioned yeah. were, were HIV yeah. and the specific kind of cancer that yeah. was related to asbestos work. That's right. Um, and so we, the public now has that kind of stuff in their mind. Mm -hmm. And then along comes a local newspaper and says, there's a cancer cluster in Hocassin, Delaware, and all sorts of alarm bells go off because people remember those real clustering effects yeah, around yeah. asbestos and uh, HIV. Yeah, it's it's um, that's really to me the kicker here is is what are we how how is the media uh, disseminating information? What information are they are they disseminating? And ultimately, what are we telling people? And how um, do they understand it? Because I think that uh, uh, the Delaware News Journal, for example, is a, is a nice example of a couple of years ago in uh, September 12, 2010, they had a front page, uh, front page news article about cancer clusters. And it was very effective because one of the things they did is they used a geospatial and, and color-coded mapping to show Delaware's uh, census tracts and then showed the census tracts that were considered uh, elevated in terms of cancer and called them cancer clusters. And so it's interesting, if you were to pick up the paper, you'd see the first page, you know, the front page of the paper, and you'd see this map with a top 10 list of, of cluster areas and type of cancer. And so, you know, immediately you, you're going to be concerned, you know, oh my gosh, I live in, you know, number five or, or number six, Middletown, Odessa, and there's a breast and pro this is a breast and prostate cancer cluster. Now, really, so we need to think about what the, what the consequences of the dissemination of health information like that are. 
generating awareness and or um, misconceptions or, or, or not necessarily intentionally misleading people, but uh, because the, the, the news journal did use the state of Delaware's reports. But I think it's a fair question to ask, what are the consequences of disseminating information like this when the information has a variety of, of inherent problems? Well, let's back up for just a moment. I mean, it's like you're saying, oh, my heavens, there's an increase in the number of cases of two of the most common forms of cancer here in this part of Delaware, around Middletown. What else could possibly have been going on? Oh, there are more people there now, too. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a variety of things that could impact this. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, oftentimes people will live near uh, industry sites or things of that nature. And so just simply by there being more people, there's more opportunity for cancer. Uh, and so, again, like the, the, the rhetorical dimensions are important in and, and thinking about how people understand this, but also how people understand cancer clusters as evidence of the impact of their local community. So for me, cancer clusters, the idea of them, and for example, the, the geospatial mapping that the news journals provided, is, is a form of rhetorical evidence where people will start, can use in their own claims-making activities, as we as sociologists would say, in trying to suggest that uh, I live in this area and it's a cancer cluster and therefore uh, the, the refinery or whatever it is nearby is, is the reason why. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And just just very briefly to kind of reiterate, the, the news journal's efforts, for example, in disseminating information about cancer clusters comes directly from a state of Delaware report. And long story short, that report, the way that it defined cancer clusters is highly unusual. As I mentioned before, cancer clusters are traditionally defined as a higher number of observed cases than would be expected for a specific type of group in a time period in a certain area. But what the state of Delaware did uh, is it took uh, cancer incidence data for all 196 census tracts, and it looked at the average all-site cancer incidence rate. So in other words, the average from 2002 to 2006 of all cancers together. But all cancers. All cancers Not rare cancers. All cancers together initially, and for all 196 census tracts. And they took the all-cancer incidence rate, the average for those years, and compared it to the average for the all-cancer incidence rate for the state. And then they created confidence intervals around these uh, incidence rates, these average incidence rates that were age-adjusted. And if a cancer, if, excuse me, if a census uh, tract had a confidence interval around its average incidence rate for all-site cancer, that was higher than the state's confidence interval and did not overlap with the state, they called that a cancer cluster. So what they were doing is taking average incidence rates per 100,000 population and comparing them to the states. So it's a, it's a highly unusual way of defining and measuring a cancer cluster, particularly because if you look at the reports, for example, uh, you'll see that of those 45 census tracts, 34 of them, or 76%, were not elevated for any of the seven types of cancers that have known environmental risk factors, such as uh, bladder cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, leukemia, liver, non-Hodgkin's, and thyroid. Um, and you'll also find, if you, if you read these reports, that, remember, they had to create incidence rates, uh, age-adjusted, per 100,000, in order to compare census tracts to the state. But if you look at the census tracts and the average number of cases per year, those census tracts that had elevated uh, cancer incidence according to their definition, the average number of cases per year in several of these range from like 12 to 26 
to 37 to 39. So none of the 45 census tracts that they called uh, cancer clusters had average incidence rates over 40 cancer cases. So you run into what's called the problem of small numbers, trying to extrapolate from a very few, a very few number of incidences uh, uh, a rate per 100,000 population to make a comparison. What happens is, is you get these massive confidence intervals. And, um, and so what that means is that they're lacking in validity. So it's a really muddy way of defining it and highly unusual. And I was curious about why they did that. One of the things I think um, those of us who live in Delaware have noticed is that oftentimes things happen in this state for good because it's a small state with a small model. But what you're telling me here is that because we've got, I mean, as you're talking about rate per 100,000, well, we don't even have a million people in the state, do we? We're about 800,000, something like that now? Yeah, I forget exactly, but it's less than a million. Yeah. yeah. So right away you're starting off with a small sample size, and anybody who does yeah. polling knows you don't predict the next president after making a, just 100 phone calls. Yeah. Um, sounds like that's a problem, but then also, the, as you're saying, the relatively small numbers of incidents and then trying to extrapolate that back up to a rate per 100,000. Right. That, that, that was one of the most confusing things to me, statistically speaking, about their measurement, because if I understand the report correctly, there was no effort to kind of calculate uh, what would be expected in those areas versus what was mm. observed. Okay. It, was, it was simply a comparison of an average incidence over time. And so then you also start to invite uh, random fluctuations over time, immigration patterns over time, uh, et cetera, you know, uh, time to diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it, you know, is in many ways statistically very low in its validity. But what makes it very interesting to me in that respect is that even that, even though that's the case, and, I, and to be fair, I think that the News Journal does do a decent job of pointing out the limitations in cancer cluster data. But uh, at the end of the day, even with all of these limitations being noted, the, the cancer cluster as a rhetorical device is very powerful. Particularly when the cancer cluster appears on page one. Yeah, it's, in, it's a powerful With a tool. colored graphic, and then the discussion of the whether or not the statistical model <laughs> is valid appears back on page seven. And yeah, and so you know, you, it, I think that um, I think that people when they when they see this on the front page of the newspaper, you know, I'm very curious about how it makes them feel and what it makes them think about their health and its relationship to the environment. Uh, and I think that that's a fair and a reasonable question about the role of the media in disseminating information uh, in this kind of, you know, social construction of health knowledge. So it's a it, cancer clusters were fascinating to me just in a nutshell because of the way that they serve as a rhetorical device, even though, uh, at least in the state of Delaware, the way that it was measured and reported uh, is highly unusual. Are you implying that the news media will do with data about cancer clusters what they do with Long-range forecasts about impending snowstorms make make you know as, as disastrous uh, kind of predictions they can to increase viewership or readership or uh, sales. You know, I can't speak for the intentions of the paper. Um, other people might say that it was irresponsible or that they're trying to sell papers, but that's not really my role. Uh, I don't think as an academic, at least. I have my okay. own personal opinions, but as a as a sociologist, I'm interested in. So, what you're really interested in is. Somebody like me sees that headline, and how do I react, yeah. and how does that affect the, the entire situation? Yeah, because, you know, it'll necessarily have an impact on your own behavior, and um, it'll also, uh, you know, we have to be aware of how these things in, in influence ultimately also public policy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, 
you know, we need to think about what, what a cancer cluster is as a, as a measurement definition first and foremost, and then think about how that's translated into digestible information in a newspaper. And I think that it's a, it's a huge leap, uh, at least with the state of Delaware's report. It's, it's, it was a highly unusual way of measuring it. But then ultimately, does that matter, you know? Uh, people think cancer cluster, and as you said at the beginning of the show, and I thought this was a very poignant uh, uh, point that you made, is you know they have a couple of precedents that are generally established and we're, and we're connected, but then you've got again about a thousand a year that are invalidated, but you've got just a handful of precedents, and then you see information like this, and then you start to wonder, well, maybe it's a cancer cluster, and I think that was a great point that you made because it does have an impact. You've been doing some research down in Baltimore. Is it on the same topic? Uh, no, not necessarily. It's it's um, the 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 Baltimore research that we're doing and the and the and the Wilmington research that we're doing is generally about how communities that are racial and ethnic minorities and, and generally poor, uh, or at least with high concentrations of people who fall below the poverty threshold, they're usually situated in areas that are at the nexus of a variety of of environmental pollutants and industry pollutants and uh-huh. you know historical mm-hmm. uh, legacy pollutions and toxics and so forth. What we're trying to do is to bring the community in as researchers. And so this kind of you know, citizen science alliance is, is sort of the forefront of this interdisciplinary work where, again, we can inform each other, but even more so have people involved in the communities actually performing research, which gives them skills, empowers them, but also gives them information that they can use. And there are a lot of interesting questions that are coming out of that as well. Uh, for example... What if there is concern in a community about um, about being you know health, unhealthy in a certain way or whatever, but at least according to scientific investigations or scientific instrumentation, there's no evidence of that. You know, how do you solve that dilemma? And I think that that's right at the core of a lot of the environmental movements that happen in Delaware and, and elsewhere. Is there's this disparity between the process and evidence available with science versus lay experience versus prevention principle, or the notion that if it, if you think that it's probably bad for you, it probably is. So I think that at that neck, there's a there's interesting questions that are still yet unanswered at that nexus of science and uh, community embodied experiences. Sounds like uh, that is though related to the research that you're doing with the cancer clusters too, because it's about perception, media, and the public involvement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think that a lot of the work that we're doing really engages these complex issues. Because at the end of the day, you know, no one wants anybody to be sick. And we all want our, our earth and soil and water to be better. Uh, I would hope that we all want that. And so I think that it's, it's fair to ask reasonable questions about what do we know and how do we know it? And then how can we solve the problems we have? Uh, and, I, and that's an important, uh, I think, point that we, need to, that we need to consider. And I'll be engaging a lot of these issues in a class I'm teaching in the fall, 2014, called Environment and Health, uh, where we'll be looking at cancer clusters and other sorts of issues. Victor Perez, thank you so much for coming in. I thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. It's been, it's been enjoyable. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. 
For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at WVUD.org. I'm Joe Newberry. Whenever my banjo takes me near Newark, Delaware, I listen to WVUD 91.3 FM. You are listening to 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1 Newark.